my are god. You good for, are you good with this, by the way? Are you all right there? Are we all through? Oh, she's down! Oh, now you should have filmed that. You should have filmed Emily falling in the mud at a really deep conversation about, about psychology. This week on Walking the Dog, I went to Norfolk for a country stroll with sports presenter Jake Humphrey and his beautiful Labrador Belle, along with Labrador Alfie, who belongs to Jake's mum and dad. You'll probably know Jake from his coverage of major sporting events from Formula One to the Olympics to Sports Personality of the Year and, of course, as the BT Sport Premier League anchor. Jake's created a really idyllic family setup at his Norfolk home. They've got a lake, they've got chickens wandering around. He gave me eggs to take home. But as perfect as his life seems, it's not been without some mental health challenges and moments of self-doubt. And I was really impressed that he was so open about that. We also talked about his childhood, failing his A-levels, his huge TV break, and why he feels in his absolute element doing live TV every week. Jake, by the way, hosts a podcast, which is called The High Performance Podcast. It's hosted by Jake and a psychologist, Professor Damien Hughes, and it features all sorts of high achievers, from Rio Ferdinand to Tom Daly, all sharing the psychology behind their success. I found it incredibly inspiring. I think you'll really like Jake. He's an interesting combination of someone who's obviously very driven and business-minded, who's also happiest just wandering around the countryside for hours with his dogs, watching me fall in the mud. Oh yes, that happened. I really hope you enjoy our walk as much as I did. Remember to rate, review and subscribe if you did. I'll hand over to him now. Here's Jake and Belle and Alfie. Is this usual for Jake to do the walk, or is this your job normally? No, this is usual, actually. I have to say, he loves, How about that? He loves it. I don't know where so to what, begin. So what you're doing? Are you going to walk around here or walk around? Jake? Well, I think that we could have a little walk around the garden, and then we can go through a fence there. There's um, a bit of sort of scrubland, and we'll try and get through there down the alleyway, then we're onto a lovely little country lane, then it takes us round into a kind of bit of common land where we can just walk around there. There might be some cattle, so we might have to put the dogs on the lead, but I'll just give you a little flavour of Norfolk in the sun. Did you like me as a townie trying to look cool and unfazed when Jake said, maybe walk through some cattle? <laughs> well, let me just check I've Love got you, darling. Thank you so much, Harriet. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, we're going to take both. We won't yeah. be long. Come on, Alfie. So welcome. It's just sl slightly unnerving when it's not your dog. Like, I know Alfie, obviously, because he's my mum and dad's, but it's just different, isn't it? I know, the bell will just stick with us all the time, but it might be a we have to put Alfie on the lead at some point. So, Jake, let's introduce the dogs before yeah. we even introduce you. Yeah, quite right. We have with us... We have Belle, who is our fox red Labrador, at which point you look at her and think, she's not fox red, I know. Um, and then we have Alfie um, with half a tail. My mum and dad's slightly older and much bigger Labrador, but they're just great mates. And my mum and dad have gone out for the whole day, and so we're, we're dog-sitting Alfie. Immediately, she wants to go in the water, look. Is this your lake? Yeah. I mean, it's not often I get to ask that question. <laughs> Which I know people will listen and think, oh, that's, what is he doing having a lake? But the great thing about <laughs> living in Norfolk is, like, there's a lot of land here, so you can kind of, you know, you, you we live in the country, you know. Like he's in the lake already, Alfie is. What's Belle doing? She's crouching oh, over yeah. the lake. No, look, she wants a stone thrown in the water for her. Oh, shall I do it? Yeah. So which, which one, go, Jake? Go for that one. Are you sure? And then she'll, oh, that's big. she'll then go, Belle! you can throw it, give it a good old hull. Where? 
Oh, Where is it? Now off she goes looking for something that's sunk. So but they just love being in the water. Look at those two. Oh. See, well, I'm now, because I work in television, I'm now wishing this was like video because it just looks so cute, doesn't it? So yeah, she, she should be fox red. But when we went to some friends who go to school with our children, they, um, they had puppies. Yeah. We, would, we were keen to, I grew up in a house always having dogs. So I was really keen for our kids to have dogs. And um, so we thought, right, let's do it. Let's get a dog. We turned up to look at these fox red pups. And hey, look at the herons come to steal the fish, look. Straight in. He saw us and left again. This is so, they saw this townie and they thought... Oh. I know, yeah. Everything's like, what? Her, what? The townie with the Costa Coffee cup. You thought Soho Farmhouse was the countryside, <laughs> didn't you? That's the problem. This is the real thing. When we, when we sometimes go on holiday, the kids are like, yeah, but Dad, like, why are people getting so excited about some chickens and an old tractor? Because that's all they see all day long. Is, Chickens and an old tractor. It's we'll have to go and see Disney if we've got some country. eggs, actually, for you. So fact, I should officially... Fresh eggs. Oh, I'd love some yeah, eggs. We'll go and see I... if they've laid anything. I've never been offered eggs on walking So this has been before. our little... Well, I'm not a massive camper, right? So the odd night in a tent is in the garden is all that we need to do. And then back in the house. Just one night. We've done it twice over the summer. And the whole family stays in there, yeah, or is yeah. that date night? <laughs> it's not date <laughs> that's, just, that's how we do romance in Norfolk. Come on, love, out to the tent. You're a cheap day, aren't you, Jake? <laughs> um, I should officially introduce you, Jay Humphrey, because I'm very excited to be here. I'm with a man who really needs no introduction. Everyone knows who you are, Jake. In fact, I know that everyone knows who you are because when I was driving up here and I got, not lost, but I just wanted to check I was going in the right direction, I won't say where you live, but I, I mentioned your address to someone local. Yeah. And they looked a bit blank. And then I thought, I'm going to have to do it. And I said, do you know if Jake Company went, oh, Jake, of course. Well, I do get posts addressed to just my name and the town I live in. And that's it. And it does get to the door. And actually, the field that we're walking through now, I had a really good, fun 40th birthday party in here last year. and put some tents up and had some food trucks and a load of bands and stuff. Is this uh, your field, Jake? Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Do you know what? We've tried really hard because when we first came here, this was just thistles and nettles everywhere. And we've seeded it with lovely sort of traditional English grasses. And we've tried to turn it into a wildflower meadow because they're on the decline so much. But it's a lot of work and it's, it's, um, it's kind of a bit hit and miss really. So I was hoping this year that this whole field will be a riot of crazy colour, but sadly it, hasn't, it isn't to be. But I'm kind of... I'm quite heavily plugged into that whole environmental thing and everything we try and do here on a very small scale. You know, if I can just make a small patch of traditional English wildflower meadow, it's a small gesture, but it makes a difference. These two love it. Look at them. Oh, come on, Belle and Alfie. I'm Go with on. Belle and Alfie, as we yeah. were saying. And we're in, I won't say exactly where we are, but we're in near Norwich, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. Sun's out. You mentioned briefly that you'd, you'd had dogs when you were growing up. That's right. And where was that? That was, I was born in Peterborough, and that's where we had our first dog, who was a, a beautiful mongrel called Sally. Mm. And, um, and then we moved to Norfolk in the late 80s, 1987. So my mum and dad are about five miles down the road in the same village as my sister. My brother is still in Norwich, in the north of the city. He runs um, a picture framing gallery in Norwich. My sister and her husband both work for the NHS. And 
it just felt like we needed to come home mm. when I stopped working on Formula One and we, and we had our first child. And when you were growing up, what, what sort of a childhood was it? Just a really kind of, I mean, a really happy childhood, really happy childhood. Um, I thought, I kind of, I wanted to say kind of normal, but then that almost does it a disservice. Do you know what I mean? Like there was nothing outstanding. I went to the sort of local state school. I had a paper round like everyone did. I used to do the garden for a, a guy that lived around the corner. I then became a waiter. Should we go over the bridge? Yeah, let's go over the bridge, yeah. And mm. wait, tell me what your parents, it was you and your, um, you have a brother and a sister. Yeah, I've got an older sister and a younger brother, so I was the classic middle child. What, do, what does that mean to you, the classic middle child? Um, well, my, a good example, and my mum and dad will love me telling this story, was that my sister was the oldest, so she was kind of in charge, and my brother was the youngest, so he was like really well looked after. So one Christmas, and this is not a word of a lie, my brother got a brand new jacket and a guitar for Christmas. My dad worked for Age Concern Norfolk. So um, we actually lived in an old people's home for a few months when we couldn't find a house. That was an experience. And so I got, from one of the old people's homes where he was working, a knitted Norwich City monkey. I was about 15, honestly. <laughs> and even now, I say to my mum and dad, remember the knitted monkey when my brother got a guitar? You see, I wonder so if you... that's what spurred you on to your success. The mon it's all down <laughs> to the knitted monkey, It all goes Jake. back to the monkey from Ethel Tipple Court. Do you genuinely think that does, in some way, make you crave attention more? Does it make you crave attention? I don't think it made me crave attention. I think I can only sort of talk from my experience. And like, in, I'm in no way scarred from being a middle child, but I do think that you just have to fight a little bit more because your sister is the first one to do everything, or in my case. So that's kind of exciting and brilliant. And then your little brother is the kind of little one that everyone needs to look after. So you're kind of, you are kind of a little bit in the middle. And I think maybe um, I was a bit in the middle, Emily, my whole upbringing. Like I, I was the most ordinary child at school. Like didn't do any, people often think that because I'm on the telly, I must have done like drama or acting at school or anything like that. I did none of that. I wasn't in any of the clubs. I'm a sports presenter who never played any of the school teams. I think I played once for my school team and was so bad they never picked me again. Um, my GCSEs were like very ordinary 1A, which was only in word processing and I only took that just to get an A. It actually did a typing GCSE. 1A, <laughs> um, uh, 4Bs, 5Cs, something like that. And then I went and did my A-levels and again, just everything was normal. And I suppose then there was like a it was like a sea change then, when, um, when I failed my A-levels. What did uh, you get? I got an E, an N and a U. What's an N? Oh, exactly. I think... <laughs> <laughs> they made up I a category for you. I was as confused as you when I opened the, the envelope. Actually, I said to the teacher, I said, excuse me, I've opened this and I've got an N. Um, and do you know what? I'll never forget her quite sarky re response. Oh, what is Alfie doing? Oh, I thought they were in the water. Look Alfie at these and Bella are on a, a bridge, a little wooden mini yeah. sort of bridge. Look who's the other Jesse. side of the wooden bridge. Oh, Jake, is that a cow? It's a cow, yeah. How do the cows react to the dogs in your We'll get around that side, they'll come and feed from us. Oh, we'll find out. Yeah. Yeah, again, like with Belle, she's perfect. Alfie, I just don't want him to run in there and, like, for his sake, really, because I think he might get trampled if he Alfie! disturbed them. Oh, no. Come on! Alfie! 
Oh, I've lost my mum and dad's dog. Oh, where's he gone? Alfie! Hey! Oh, there's a rustling in the bushes. We found him. So, um, that's interesting. You were saying about your A-levels. Yeah. Today. You got an N. What did you discover what it meant? So, yeah, so the teacher said to me, um, an N is for someone who um, isn't quite clever enough to get an E, but not so thick they got a U. And I think she thought it was a joke, because I opened and she didn't know my previous grade was an E, and the next one I opened after the N was a U. And that was for English, politics and psychology A-level. And that was a bad day, man, because my mum, we've got left down here, my mum was a teacher at the school where I went. She was a home economics teacher, which is where my sort of love of cooking and all sort of homey things comes from, I think. And um, I remember my, I walked into the back door and it was that horrendous scene where my dad was standing holding a bottle of champagne with the smile on his face and he just went, well... And I remember I just went like this, I just put my sort of fingers to my head and was like, like my head's gone, Dad. And I went upstairs and um, my dad is such a brilliant sort of gentle bloke. I remember him coming up and just basically saying everything will be fine. And interestingly... Oh, how nice, Jake. What a lovely man. Yeah, he was great. And they had a friend staying over. And our, my mum and dad's friend, who for the life of me I can't remember her name, but she felt that she had like slightly mystic powers or an ability to kind of read what's going to happen. And she said, that minute, she said, you don't know this yet. Failing your A-levels is the best thing that will ever happen to you. And I just looked at her and I obviously thought, you're just trying to make me feel better, which is really nice. And weirdly, it turned out that she was exactly right. We're around the back of Jay's house now. Hey, look at that right. now. That's Belle's dog run for if we go out. Wow. She will not stay in it. She leaps over that. See how high that fence is? She just leaps over. So does Belle... Climbs out. So. Alfie obviously lives with your parents. Yeah. And does Belle... Um, does she have the run of the house? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Is she allowed in the beds? She... Mm, right, this is a slightly sore subject because we've always been... She's such a good girl and she knows that she's a dog. In, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. So she, when we go upstairs and put the kids to bed, she sleeps on the bottom of the stairs and waits for us to come down and put the kids to bed. Last couple of weeks, she started going up to bed with the kids and laying in bed with them. In fact, let me show you a picture quickly. That is a real life dog, dog daughter. And they were asleep. Look at Belle, she's fast asleep. You okay. see, looking at those pictures of your daughter... I'm not that Jen. cool with that, though, by the way. Are you not? Not really. Like, part of the uh, life countryside upbringing is that, you know, we have some friends whose dogs are just outside-only dogs, a lot of the farmers that we know. I'm definitely a step more towards it's a member of the family and so Belle comes in, is in the kitchen, is with us all the time, but I'm not a dog comes on the bed kind of person. Why? I just, partly hygiene reasons, I mean, you know, we do shower and bath most days. Oh look here, there's a sparrowhawk that we found on the lawn today. Look at that, isn't that stunning? Sad, but oh, stunning. Oh, I find it really sad. I know, I know, I know. It's Absol a dead sparrowhawk. Look at that, it's a bird of prey. Absol look at those claws on that. Oh, Jay. Got a broken foot here. You have to get quite used to death in the country. Yeah, you do, do you absolutely. Think so? Yeah, you do. I mean, we, um, I mean, look at that one. That's in flight. Look at that. Jake's holding out the wingspan of the dead sparrowhawk. It's uh, not what I expected <laughs> from today. We're not sure what happened to it, though. It's, we don't think it was an animal attack. It feels like it flew into something because it's got a broken neck. So. 
You see, the way so you handled that a deceased bird... You're now thinking, why doesn't he let his dog on the bed if he touches dead? <laughs> no, oh, I'm thinking I could have again. seen you being a veterinarian. My daughter, that is her chosen profession. Alfie! Alfie! Good boy, oh, he's got that wet ball again. So yeah, your, your issue with the dogs on the bed is hi partly hygiene? And partly I just think that... I still think there is boundaries with dogs. I still think that it's important that you eat your dinner and they're not at the table slobbering and sniffling around and they wait until you've eaten and they eat. I just think it's like, it's not like a control or a power thing. I just, I just wouldn't want a dog that just thinks it can just go anywhere it likes. You know? But then sometimes the great thing I would imagine about having kids is that they challenge mm. your beliefs. Totally. Because well, you're thinking, yeah, yeah. this is what I think, and then you see how happy that makes your Completely. daughter. And yep. it made me almost well up, well, that no. picture. Well, so I think maybe that's what kids are there for, is to teach you to think, well, what? And I think it's also really great for the kids because the relationship they have with us is different to their grandparents, and which is different to their cousins, and it was absolutely different to their dog. Like, the relationship Belle has with Florence and Sebastian is like nothing else. So, Jake's got a lovely piano. Yeah, that's Harriet plays that. Not as often as she should, but she does. I'm going to take oh. you and show you the chickens if they've got any eggs for you. So, um, you had, and I know this because you've spoken about it, which I think is great that you've spoken yeah. about it, but you had, you were bullied, weren't you, at school, Jake? That's right, yeah, yeah. So tell me about that and what that was like. I mean, obviously not great, but no, how did it manifest itself? Yeah, at the time it was awful. I mean, we moved... We moved up to Norfolk when I was still at primary school and that was kind of all okay but it was when I, it was when I went to a high school in Norwich that it just, come on Alfie, it just wasn't good really um, and it was, I just, I was just really sad. I had absolutely no friends at that school. I was only there for year seven and year eight and I kind of, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of quitting or anything but I just had to leave basically because it just can become a bit toxic. And I think the big issue in those days was that schools struggle to know how to deal with it. Mm. So my mum and dad spoke to the school um, and then it was kind of like, it was like made a big deal of in front of all the children. This guy's getting bullied. Can you all please stop doing that to him? And it's like, what's that going to do? Like in 2020, schools would deal with it very differently. And I'm not accusing them of not doing the right thing. They probably did what everyone, what every school would have done at that time. Yeah. Um, but it was really hard, really horrible. But then I suppose I'm, I come from a, a viewpoint now, which has only really been something I've cottoned on to. This, by the way, is our fox protector, talking of getting used to death. We lost a few foxes recently. So we've got this stuff over the top. Just What do you mean you lost oh, Sorry, them? lost a few chickens. Oh, I see. Not nice for the kids. No. Florence loves, do you like chickens? Yeah, I do actually. Are the dogs okay with the chickens? Belle will be fine. Alfie might come in and have a sniff, so we might shut Alfie, the gate. Alfie, you're not allowed into the chickens. Belle Sorry. Will be, Belle, um, well, Belle's friends with them, really. How many chickens have you got, Jake? We've got... We had four, lost two to the fox, and then got another four. So we have six now. Hello, chicken. Who's in Hello, there? Hello, darling. Hello, you. This, this one is shouting because she's always broody. Let me in first. Hello, there you go. Guy. It's okay, sweetheart. It's okay, sweetheart. That's Coco. Coco. In here we've got Lavender, who um, is broody as well. I think, so you know the broody thing comes from wanting to have a 
obey a chick, basically. Yeah. Not only is she broody, but if you try and take her off the nest, she was super aggressive. I love it here, you know, Emily, because this is like the total antithesis of the TV world, basically. Hey, cool. Jake's not me in here with I'm the chicken. I'm just getting some food. <laughs> Have you had a chicken before? No. So all you want to do is just hold it around there so that its wings don't, so a bit higher up, like holding its wings in so its wings, because if its wings flap, then you'll get There, there you, you go. There you go, sweetheart. How about that? She's a natural with the chicken. Be honest, how appealing is the country life when oh, you get a little taste Do you know what, I'm giving like the this. chicken a little massage. Yeah, good. These are amazing. Yeah, they don't lay great eggs on. When they do, they're about this big. They're tiny little things. And, and what, what are they called? Silkies. Oh, they're silkies. You know, they're very North London. <laughs> you can, why don't you get a silky on a lead and walk around Highgate? You could be the crazy chicken lady of Highgate. That would go down really well out there. I mean, I like that I'm the crazy chicken lady already. <laughs> so, Jake... I'm going to give you these eggs. Oh, I love that. I can't take them yet, though. Well, We've still got the podcast to finish. Oh, yeah. Let's leave them here and then we'll, we'll come them on back the way back. We'll come back to the eggs. Yeah. It's a great idea. Well, leave the eggs there. It's so kind of you, though. Pleasure. So tell mm. me, you were saying about your uh, school, mm. and that sounds... What, what was it like, though, Jake? What sort of things would they do? The bully? Um, what kind of bullying was it? Like, I suppose partly sort of physical bullying. I mean, the single worst episode was when we were getting changed after swimming one day, and just as I took off my swimming trunk, I got pushed out the door of the changing room, but it pushed you into, like, um, a car park and a load of classrooms. So I was standing there trying to maintain my dignity with my hands while the bigger lads, because I was a really late developer. Like I was small, I was, my English teacher, Mr. Pugh, used to say that I was just like a bit too sensitive, you know? Like, I think the reason now that I love the job I do, and particularly the podcast I do, is that empathy with other people. Like, I just want everyone to get on. I want positivity. Life's not very long. We can all do better. But that doesn't really work very well when you're a 15-year-old. Oh, Alfie, why does he do this? That's not the place to go, is it? It's clearly we're going around the corner to some land that Alfie's is not mine. Alfie's gone straight into the pond. So we're going, we're navigating some... I mean, I say navigating, it's hardly the Temple of Doom, but... Listen, if you've come from Highgate, this is a big, <laughs> this is a big hike we're on right now. This is all sorts of challenges. This is, I feel like Captain Oates. So, so you, things didn't go well in terms of academic qualifications, yeah. but it sounds like, I mean, do you think the bullying might have contributed to that a bit? I think that the bullying, um, the bullying created something which I think is a huge, hugely important in anyone's life, which is resilience. And it's something I struggle with all the time with Flo and Seb. How can they be brought up in these beautiful rural surroundings, go to a great school, have loads of wonderful things in their life and still have resilience how do I create that fight and that struggle in them because I think that one of the big issues we have these days is that people don't fail at stuff we don't for a start we don't let our kids fail at anything we just constantly create a world around our children where they're going to be fine and everything's going to work out for them because we've smoothed the path in front of them and even if they do fail at something we're very quick to tell them that they haven't failed um, they've done okay and it's just like, you know, you, you'll do better next time or something like that or, or just ignore it and brush it under the carpet and feel sorry for them and go and buy them something to kind of ease the pain. And if, you, if we do that, if we, if we create children that don't struggle and don't fail, I think they get to 
2021 and have no proper concept of actually how brutal the world can be mm. and how important it is to fail. Like when I say they fail, I'm not talking about it in a negative sense. Like I think failure and having a comfortable relationship and an ability to fail at stuff is the absolute single most important thing you can do. Because I think that if you don't teach people, young people, that failure is an option and it's okay, I think that there's a road hit. <laughs> Boys, girls, wait. I think that they think when they try something and fail, they think, oh, this isn't for me. This is the wrong path because I failed at it. They see failure as the opposite of success and it bloody isn't. Failure is part of the journey to getting there. It's part of the journey to success. Do you think, though, because I agree with you intellectually. There's another dead bird of prey there, look. Oh, I wonder if this is some sort of omen or is this just a, is this just a Thursday? This is just an average Thursday <laughs> in the countryside. Um, I agree with you intellectually about yeah. that failure thing, absolutely. Is it hard as a parent, though, when you see your own kids being in situations where they're disappointed or experiencing yeah. discomfort to, to deal with that? Yeah, completely. And that's why I'm totally aware that I haven't managed to conquer that because I've not let Florence or Seb really fail at anything yet. And I, I'm not... What not do you mean by that? I haven't let them... Like, we, we make sure that if they've got a tricky bit of homework, we sit with them and really guide them through it and make sure that by the time they take it to school the next day, the answers are right. Mm. Well, maybe sometimes the best thing for them is to realise that they've got the wrong answer and if they go into school with the wrong answer, that's okay. You don't have to have all the answers to all the things all the time in this world. Mm. Um, and so I'm not sort of coming at it from a point of view that I've conquered it and I'm sort of preaching, saying that's what you need to do. I have not, I have not done that. You know, you can call it that, that in itself could be considered a failure, I suppose, but like a good failure because it's part of learning, isn't it? It's part of living in that, in that now moment. The things that I, I'm probably most proud of all the things I've done of, the, of Whisper, which is our production company. Um, and that has just been constant failure, constant mistakes, constant learning. And we've been going for 10 years and, and it's, it's now, oh, car coming. Oh, there's a car coming now, Jake. Right, let's What's see. Belle, come here. Shall I take Belle? Yeah, would you mind? I think Belle's going to be less pulley. A, a better fit for me. Yeah, Just because I'd quite like to show off that I do know how to handle a dog on a lead. I know you do. <laughs> I, I've listened to many of your pods. In fact, your, your podcast was the first one I ever listened to. I want to talk about when your career started. Because yeah. for some people it starts young, doesn't it? It starts... <coughs> often yeah. when I chat to people for this podcast, there's a story of the the show mm -hmm. when they were five mm -hmm. you know whatever the jake humphrey show mum and dad yeah. or which is the total opposite really i think really well yeah i think so like going back to the a-level story and my mum and dad's friend who said this is the best thing that will ever happen to you that was a tricky period and there were sort of three things that happened at that time my my granddad who was a farmer you've probably picked up i might have come from a farming <laughs> background <laughs> he um in the 1960s he was going to a wedding and he went down to the farm to show his brother his new suit for the wedding. Mm. And it was proper old school, top hat and tails suit. And the, they were picking potatoes. With the, have you seen those potato pickers? They're sort of shaped like that and they rotate like that and they pull the potatoes out the ground, send them over the top and into the back of a truck. And then sometime around the 1940s probably, they, they invented a machine to do it. And he went down to show his brother his top hat and tails and said, look, I'm off to a wedding, how do I look? potato picker caught his tail, pulled him into the machine, 
snapped his back in half and he survived but was uh, paralysed from the waist down and at that time they said to him this is like 10 year lifespan and he lived until the mid to the late 90s um, amazing guy granddad John and as a young kid you have no concept that your granddad is disabled it's just absolutely brilliant fun when he climbs into bed to get on his wheelchair and do a wheelie and wheel around with my cousin Simon and it's only really later in life that you get an insight that adulthood gives you of kind of how difficult that must have been I mean, mm. I, the one thing that I always remember when I think of the sort of the trauma you would have gone through on a daily basis without ever complaining once was when we all got dressed up to go to a zoo somewhere and he used to have a wooden board that he would slide across to get into the car so he'd ride his wheelchair up to the car have to take off the side of the wheelchair in front of his two little grandkids by the way put a piece of wood under his bottom pull himself into the car across the piece of wood into the driver's seat close up his wheelchair and then he had a machine on the top of his car that used to store a bit like, see that thing there on top of that car, which is used for like going camping. Oh, he used yeah. to have a really big one which would store a wheelchair. Mm. And he'd have a winch in, and the winch would come out, he'd tie it into the wheelchair, press a button, and the wheelchair would get lifted up into the roof of the car, and off we'd go, and he'd use hand controls to drive us around. Um, on this particular day, as he slid himself across, he pooed himself. And as grandkids, he goes, oh, we can't go out, guys. He has to go back in the house, my grandma has to clean him up. Look, you know, and I sort of, I'm only really telling you this story because, like, at the time, as a grandson, I was just like, that's cool, we'll just go and play in the garden. We'll, do you know what I mean? It meant nothing. But to him, it must really have been a kind of difficult moment. You know? Hi, Sarge, how are you? Yeah, really well, nice to see you. Lovely day, isn't it? Well, come here. Brilliant. That house is lived in by the former head of the British Army, who would be great for your podcast, actually. Lord Richard Dannett. Is that him? Mm. And that's the guy is that, that works Lord for Richard him. Richard Dannett? Oh, no, that's the man. And that's Sarge, who would have been a sergeant probably in the army with him and now looks after him. Oh, so when you said hi, Sarge, I didn't know he was an actual Sarge. Yeah. Bell! Come Bell. here. Alfie! <laughs> so my yeah, grandma so was his... So she was his carer and... When he, when he died, she did struggle a great deal. And sadly, she committed suicide just after he oh, died. Jake, that's and that awful. was, and that was yeah, yeah, absolutely it was. And that was around the same time that I failed my A-levels. Um, and then I got, believe it or not, fired from McDonald's, which takes some doing. So you can sort of see that that was a period of like quite a few kind of heavy body blows, right? And then the bullying at school hadn't been great. And I, I was just like, I was, I suppose I would describe myself as being the kid who felt there was kind of nothing special about them. And then the most remarkable thing happened after failing my A-levels, I went back to school to, to do A-level retakes. And on the day that I went in, Mr. Brogan, my politics teacher, would you like a blackberry? Oh, I'd love a blackberry. There you go, you better pick it in I'll the current climate. Mm. Like that. Mr. Brogan had a letter, and the letter was from a local TV company called Rapture Television. And they were looking for young people to go on their channel and talk about 
political issues. So they were writing to the local A-level politics class, of which I was in because I failed my A-levels. So I was redoing my politics at A-level. So I went down there and I just said to them, look, it's not great, I failed my exams. Bearing in mind, you know like you don't speak to anyone a, a year below you at school, do you? Mm. I obviously then had to go back and um, sit in a class with all these younger children. I say younger, only a year younger, but at school you just, it's embarrassing, man. And um, so I went to a local TV channel and they ended up using me and paying me five pounds cash to work Saturday and Sunday, to move sets around, to operate the auto queue, to work the sound desk and all these things, because they had no money, they couldn't employ presenters. Nor did you at five pounds. No, neither did I. So they used me, but like what I learned was worth so much more than that, you know? And that was my first job in television. Then when I passed my A-levels, I got a job there because they ran, while I was working there as, as a work experience kid, I suppose you'd call me, they ran a competition for viewers to send in a home video and the best home video got to go to Paris and present a show. But because they'd only just started and they had no viewers, they got no videos. So they asked me and the other work experience guys to create a video as if we were viewers and then they picked the winner. Obviously this is in the days where you could lie on the television and no one minded. Yeah. Things had changed somewhat. But I was then sitting in the gallery operating the auto queue and the presenter went, and the winner is Jake Humphrey from Norwich. And there's me having just filmed this video in my garden <laughs> with my best mate Stephen, suddenly going to Paris to do some presenting, which my parents were dead against because this was the time to focus on passing my A-levels. Mm. Um, I went to Paris, really enjoyed it. Dare I say, found it easy. And then they offered me a job. And then and that was it. I, I worked at Rapture TV when I passed my A-levels. And then someone said, you need to make a showreel. Created a showreel, sent it down to London and ended up being the first presenter on the new children's BBC channel in February 2001. That, you must have been so thrilled when you... Do you still remember finding out you'd got the job? Yeah. I've got a few kind of memories like that. The, the biggest one is that when I walk into my mum and dad's living room, because just before I got offered a job on Children's BBC, I auditioned for Blue Peter, and I didn't get it. But when I go into my mum and dad's lounge, that, the, the evening I got back from that audition, the smell of their living room reminds me of that day. I can go straight back, because obviously the emotions were so heightened. I was this kid from Norwich that ended up in the Blue Peter studio, jumping up and down on a trampoline, mm. like doing a proper audition for a show that you know, was so famous. Um, and we're still at, in its kind of heyday 20 years ago. And then my memories from getting that job on Children's BBC was just kind of the responsibility, really, of being a Children's BBC presenter. You know, you're following in some amazing footsteps. But then I had great fun. I hosted Fame Academy with yes, I remember. Holly Willoughby and Caroline Flack. And then I moved on and did News Round and hosted News Round for a while, which was great. And then they were looking for a new Formula One presenter. But at that point, Jay, yeah. you, I would have thought, you're young, this extraordinary thing has happened. Yeah. Well, I don't like has happened. That, that implies you had no part in it. You've, you've created this extraordinary opportunity for yourself and everything's working out. And then you, you struggled a bit during that time, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that was... I think that was just going to London and my parents 
sort of leave. I remember the panic rising as they drove off. They, I moved into a flat in East London. But look where I live, right? This is what I came from. And suddenly I'm in Limehouse in a small flat, like scared basically. And I think it was just a bit, it was just a bit overwhelming. And I suppose that period that I'd gone through a few years before, maybe I hadn't really processed that properly. But I actually think that, and I genuinely believe that, well, we still talk about when people have mental health episodes as this kind of like a big deal, right? Mm. But if I'd, have, if I'd have had a bad knee or, you know, a stomach problem or something, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't discuss it in the same terms. Almost like it, let's go in here, this nice bit of common land. Like it still is a big deal, Emily. And I think that while we talk about it like you had this period where you had a mental health episode, like, mm. like it's a big deal, I think that still makes a people going through it feel like what they're going through is a big deal which then stops them talking about it enough i yeah. think I, th I don't i struggle to know of anyone and who at some time in their life hasn't had some kind of mental health problem whether it's just serious self-doubt you know all the way to um go on look at that a dog trying to work out how to get through a a kissing gate isn't sorry well, you haven't seen me try and do it yet so let's not laugh at the dog too much jay <laughs> um i think that oh hold on there's cows in here let's put out <gasps> on a leaf i think it's really important to sort of normalize if we can mm. when we have had a mental health episode or a pro or even if it's an ongoing mental health problem like like we would if it was a physical ailment. And I think that we spend so much time thinking about how can we go to the gym. I don't think anyone would have nothing that wouldn't be helped by talking. Yeah. All of us, even just a conversation like this between a couple of friends. It doesn't need to be a formal counselling session. I just think we just have to talk more. And, and how did you deal with it, Jake, yourself? Because you, that, I wonder, there's a part of me that wonders whether you'd so convinced yourself that you were kind of nothing really yeah. at that point and I think as human beings we cling to our identity we think I like this I like this film I like the I don't like coriander or yeah. I like it I'm a failure I'm successful so I wonder if it suddenly felt daunting and overwhelming that that was being challenged it was like oh my are god you good for, are you good with this by the way ah. are you all right there ah. are we all through ah. ah. down. oh now you should have filmed that you should have filmed Emily falling in the mud at a really deep conversation about, about psychology. <laughs> but you know what? You sort of instinctively reached out to help me. And I thought, oh, I think you'd be good to have on a desert island. Good. I'll do my best for you. Are you quite like that? Are you quite, in a group situation, are you quite a problem solver? Are you a, I'm dealing with it? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think I'm probably... In my head, I think I'm probably more standoffish because, like, the too many cooks spoil the broth type thing. Like, I would probably shrink a little bit and let the louder, let the louder people go to the front, you know. I think there's a misconception that maybe I'm loud because I'm on the telly, but I'm really, I don't consider myself to be loud. And I, I'm a, I've got a real obsession with quiet leaders. And my boy is very quiet. And t should we get these dogs in the water? And too often, I've apologised for him being quiet and I'm, Vowing, look at that stream. I'm vowing never to do that again. Because why can't you be quiet and brilliant? Why do we celebrate the loud and not celebrate the quiet? Yeah, that's true actually. I agree with that. I'm embarrassed now. 
when I think back to when I used to say, oh, sorry, Sebastian's a bit shy. Would you? Why would I have said that? So what? If my boy wants to be quiet and, ju- and work you out, let him, you know? Do you think it's also because we, without even realising it, we have a bit of um, unconscious bias towards what we expect of men and what we expect of women? I definitely think we still live in a world where if you're um, a woman that is a leader, you're seen as ambitious and you'll walk over anyone to get what you want and you're ruthless. Whereas if you're a, if you're a man who's a leader, then you know, you're powerful and you're dominant and you're leading. But, uh, we have to change that. We definitely have to change that. I want to have a daughter who is a, a, you know, allowed to be celebrated for being a leader, which Florence kind of is. This place feels like, we were talking about mental health, this feels like it's a really good place for your mental health. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I think that living in London, working in Formula One, my wife worked on Strictly Come Dancing and I'm Oh, did she? Eric, what was she yeah. doing on that? She was a production coordinator. Is that so, how you guys met? No, we met in a nightclub in Norwich. When did you meet? 1999, it... a long time ago. So I've been with Harriet right from that A-level failure period. She's been there every single every single step of the way oh my goodness now now i should explain what's happened my beautiful labrador has jumped in the lake excited to get a piece of stick that emily has thrown into the water only emily's throw was so bad the stick actually went behind her and is somewhere in the fields and the dogs are still in the water waiting for the stick i'm so sorry alfie and look at him wrapped in that weed (laughs) <laughs> He's wearing the Alfie's wearing the weeds like a sort of cloak. <laughs> like Emperor Alfie. Look at that, he's brilliant. She woke up in Highgate, now she's covered in mud, she's spilt Costa coffee all over a rural field in the middle of nowhere and she's searching for a stick. The, the, the things that this podcast does for her. Um, what were you, you asking? I feel I'm, be, I'm being um, urban shamed. <laughs> um, tell me... Yeah, so the move into sports. Oh, yeah. Do you think so, that, was, that was quite brave in a way? Because most people would say, God, you've done brilliantly well. Yeah. yeah I love Des Lynham as a, as a kid. And I always wanted, good girl, pal. And I always wanted to be a sports presenter. And, but it was a difficult thing to convince the BBC, really, because going back you know, to, the, to 2007, 2008, when I had that first conversation with them, they, I think they were still very much of the mindset that you're either a qualified journalist so you can be a sports broadcaster or you used to play to a high level and, and then you can talk about it as well. To take a sort of A-level failure that lost a job at McDonald's and has been on kids' TV. I mean, I was hosting a show at the time called Mobster Lobster where we'd run around in the Blue Peter Garden dressed as a giant lobster popping balloons. And in the balloons were foam, and in the foam was either a big or a small starfish, which depended how many points you got. Did you have to say to the, the, the sort of head of sport, like Niall Sloan or whoever it was, you had to say, was the, yes, was if you could time, check yeah. out my work on Mobster yeah. Lobster, please. It was, I met the talent manager, and, I, and she did actually quite pointedly say, yes, I saw you doing a Mobster Lobster this morning, and I thought, that this conversation's not going to go well. Um, but it's interesting you should mention Niall, actually, because he is the person that... that took the chance on me. He's the guy that saw someone on kids' telly and thought, I reckon I can put him on Formula One. And he was the head of football at the BBC at the time. Yeah. And then he was given the job as head of Formula One. And he's now head of ITV Sport. Mm. And I, he absolutely, along with Roger Mosey, who was the head of BBC Sport at the time, the two of them 
to take a guy from Mobster Lobster and give them the job on Formula One is a huge leap of faith. And I'm sort of eternally grateful Why for them. Why do you think they did? Timing. Because I think that at that time, there was a feeling that BBC Sport needed to be a bit younger. It needed to appeal to a younger audience. I think Formula One leans that way anyway. And I think they were looking for, just, they were looking for someone at that time that would come and bring a freshness, I think, to that department. Um, Ah, oh, but that I'm saying that's interesting that you went for something quite self-deprecating, timing. That's external factors. Yeah. I think what qualities in you did they see? Um, I think it probably comes back to the empathy thing again. I think people often think if you work in football or Formula One or any sport, you must love the sport itself. And I do love football. I love Formula One. And I, I, but what I love is is the personal story. I love the idea of someone trying to be the very, very best in the world. And there was a time where I hosted um, a quiz show for the BBC and I really struggled with it because I was doing F1 at the time. And I found myself, and you know, this is no slight on people that host quiz shows. Like they do it brilliantly and the nation love them. I get that completely. But when you're standing there going, okay, answer this question <laughs> to win 25 pounds. Let's have a look. There's a voice in my head going, Last week, you were saying, if Sebastian Vettel wins this race, he's the champion of the world. And I, and I just love that. I love the inspiring nature of sport. I love the quest to be the best you can be. I love the struggle. I love the sacrifice. I love the non-negotiable behaviours. I love all of that a hell of a lot more than I love, are Man United going to play two up top or play 4-3-3? Or is Sebastian Vettel going to pit for new tyres on the 30-second lap? I like... For me, it's about the emotion, and I think maybe they saw a bit of that. But also, um, I guess it was also a tale of taking my chances because they gave me a job on to host the Super Bowl, mm. and I did a bit of hosting on Football Focus, and then I went to the Olympics in Beijing <clears throat> in 2008 while I was still on Children's BBC and hosted an Olympic Games, and that was like I'm sitting there with Sue Barker and Hazel Irvin. But the, probably the biggest smart stamp of approval from them was asking me to host Sports Personality of the Year, mm. which I did. Did you ever feel imposter syndrome at yeah, all? Yes, and daily. Like, and I think I actually see that, as, um, I see that as a good thing. I think it keeps you on your toes. I think the day that I think I've made it and that I'm great, and, and that's one of the things that really frustrates me. You know, we touched on it really briefly, social media criticism. I think people assume that if you're on the telly and you're hosting a sports programme, and I assume that they think this because I get told it all the time when I go on Twitter that you're arrogant or that you're smug or that you're trying to be best mates with the footballers or that people want to hear your opinion. Like, I can't tell you how far opposite of that I am and that before we go on air, I'm thinking, is this the last time I do this because I'm going to mess up today and I'm totally aware that my knowledge of the sport that I'm presenting is not a patch on the people that I'm sitting alongside. Um, I've, I've had Adrian Charles on this podcast and I know yeah. he really got so hammered all the time yeah, from people in what I felt was a really disproportionate level of totally. abuse. Yeah, absolutely. Do you get that sometimes? Yep, yep, I do. And I think... Why do you think people seem to target sports presenters? I think it's... I, I don't know specifically, but... Maybe, maybe I think this just to make myself feel better. Hey, we can wash our wellies off here. Do you want to clean your... Because if they're waterproof, you'll be fine to just stand in a bit of water. Um, don't, you're not going to oh. fall again, are you? 
Shall I just tell you a really brief story? My daughter, she's only seven, obsessed with swimming outside. So every day, she likes to swim in that lake of ours with Belle. I'll show you a video. She clings on the back of Belle and Belle pulls her along. And we came down here the other day and she swam across here on her own. And I didn't want to go in, but she was again swam. because This is your daughter? Yeah, this is the back of the garden here. So we've come down the lane around the back. So this is, you know where that field was that we were in? Oh, yeah. It came so your here. kids are going to have, it's almost like a very Swallows and Amazons sort of yeah. childhood, isn't I want it? Them, I want to build a little platform so they can swim in here. And do you know what? I was panicking so badly that this was going to be the conversation of Jake Humphrey's daughter disappears off in the river. Why, you know, that dinner party test of, sorry, he let her just swim across a river on her own, aged seven. And she got to the middle. I was like, are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> and she stood up and she was up to her waist. <laughs> So I was like, ah, we're all right. Can I step in here? Yeah, um, come on in. Jake, you're such a confident country squire. You're a bit like a country. You know what you're like? You're a country squire. You, you actually just said you're a bit like a <laughs> Can I just point out that's what you just said? I, I assumed you were going to complete the word country, but we didn't get that far. Well, that's the trailer. <laughs> so the sports thing, and the reason why, um, the reason why they're so critical Yes. And, and I, I, I like to think this because maybe it makes me feel better about being criticised. I like to think that, like if you're hosting like an entertainment show, for mm. example, I'm not sure. I like to think the reason why they're <laughs> critical is actually, hey, it's nothing to do with me or anyone else they criticise. I think it's because they're so, so passionate about it. Like, they love their football team so much and they love that sport so much that if you're sitting on the television having an opinion about it yeah yeah then yeah that passion comes through and you can't say everything about everyone's football team that makes everyone happy all the time you yeah. just can't and, and well, I, I guess that's what it's about but i also think if i saw someone on the television um sitting there with paul skulls or frank lampard or whatever i'd think god but they're smug I bet they love themselves a little bit. And it's like, sometimes I don't think people realise, when well, why should they? The sort of struggle that, the struggle you have to go through before you sit down in front of a television camera, in front of millions of people and talk. Yeah, yeah. It's not normal. It's not a normal way to earn your living. And actually... Um, with fear. Almost everyone will be fighting some sort of battle that we know nothing about. So why don't we all just assume the best of everybody and see where that takes us because mm. and if you know from little things like if someone's being aggressive in their car well maybe they've had a really bad day maybe they're on their way home from a bad appointment with a doctor so don't don't react badly to that sort of thing right to looking at someone and sort of assuming they must be a certain way it's let's just assume everyone's great and then start from that viewpoint and if they prove otherwise fine well they've proved otherwise but why don't we start from the good and see where it gets us Tell me about presenting live sport. Do you quite enjoy that adrenaline? Yes, I love, I particularly like it when you get that feeling that you're sort of on a runaway train and the whole production are coming with you. You're the person at the front of the train and you are going to hit that wall and you are the only person who can pull the brakes. I love that feeling. You know, I often look at it as a kind of a pyramid, like when I'm on the television. Because I'm the person who says hello, I'm the person that has to get you on air and off air and hopefully ask the right questions and bring the right feel and tone and emotion to the programme. But beneath me are so many people that are working so hard all the time. And I, lo and I, 
And that's not to say the person at the top of the pyramid is more important, but I love the responsibility of everyone sitting there. And there's probably, right, Alfie. There's a, I think there's a cow near here. Hey, Alfie, come here. I love the feeling of all those people sitting there thinking, right, we're going on air. It's a huge game of football. What's going to happen? And I'm there going, you're fine. I love the feeling of, don't worry, I got this. I'll get us on and off that. I really enjoy that, and I don't know So you're quite a natural why. leader in that sense, aren't you? You would have been probably yep. the sergeant then. I suppose, I suppose in, a, in an so. army, I think. You've I'm got, not sure I've got the bravery for that. But a lot of people shrink from that kind of responsibility. There's all those millions of people yeah. watching you. Yeah. There's All that responsibility is essentially on your shoulders. Yes. Des Lynham called it a high-wire act without a safety net, and it absolutely does feel like that. You know, I don't use an auto-cue, I feel that something that I've written even half an hour before is not necessarily going to be relevant at the moment that we're on air. Um, and you have to be, and I think if you're obsessed with using an autocue, I think you just become too rigid and you need it there all the time. And, and it stabilises on what the bike, are you sort isn't of, it? What are you doing if you're using an autocue? Like, I don't know where the part oh, up there, yeah, up there. If you're using an autocue, you're effectively... I don't know, it feels a bit of a cheat to me. You're kind of sitting there and reading. And I would much rather be sort of reacting to exactly what happens. Because the great thing about doing live sport, and the reason why I really love it, is that the story is not written. So we go on air, and we know for the hour before the game begins what we're going to be talking about. We have absolutely no idea what we're going to talk about at half-time, what we're going to talk about at full-time. You know, is there going to be a trauma? Um, we were sadly on air the day that the... Leicester City helicopter crashed at Leicester. I, want, I wanted to ask you about that yeah. because I watched that and yeah. I really, I don't know, it kind of haunted me in a way, you mm, having to deal me. with that. I mean, it was awful. Yeah, it was but just... what talk me through what that felt like because you were, you saw the helicopter take off when you were doing your link, yeah. weren't you? Yeah, that's right. And that's an eternal um, regret, really, is that you have like a... When you do my job, you have a little voice in your head, which is kind of saying, you could talk about this or you could talk about this. And at that point, when I saw them getting on the helicopter. And we should say it's the Leicester City. Um, Leicester City owner. owner yeah. yeah. was climbing onto his helicopter. Yeah. And I remember seeing him climb on and I thought, oh, I should talk about what a brilliant owner this guy is and what a great family they are. We were already on our way to an ad break. And, um, and so instead of that, I made some stupid and now regretful and annoying glib line about, cool, look at them climbing on their helicopter after watching their Premier League football team win a game of football. At times like this, you question your life choices or something like that. Obviously, totally unaware of what was going to happen a few moments later. But I do wish that um, that moment had been about how brilliant they were because they are and were amazing owners of that football club. How did it happen, Jake, that you said that, yeah. you suddenly go to a break, yeah. it must have been pretty much moments after that did, that you hear a, a, right. a rumble or something? No, do you know, because obviously I'm wearing an earpiece and I'm hearing maybe seven or eight voices in my earpiece and I'm in a studio and I'm live on air, so I, I, don't have an, I would say I don't have an awful lot of spare capacity, <laughs> right? I'm kind of, I'm pretty much at my limits when we're live on the telly and and that morning, we'd had the sort of horrendous news that Glenn Hoddle, who we worked with, had had a heart attack. So we were live on air, and I heard 
the producer just say, okay, just go straight to the brake now, please. Um, I need to talk to you. Just get to the brake as quickly as you can. <gasps> and you and had I, no idea what this was? I had no idea what this was, but obviously, as you would, I assumed the worst about poor Glenn. And I was like, oh, oh no. I don't believe And he's obviously a friend. And I was like, I was then, in my head, I was thinking, right, what do I now say about Glenn, one of the greatest blokes I've ever met in my life, a genuine football legend, but more than that, a, a legend of a man and a person. What am I about to say? So I'm on a totally different sort of journey at that moment. And it's only then that one of the security guys comes in and says, that helicopter's just gone down. <gasps> and, and again, it took a bit of time to sort of process what he was talking about. And even then, I sort of assumed he was talking about like, um, a bumpy landing in a field next door or something. I had no concept really what was going on. And then the producer said, look, because they were all, our production team are based in the car park of the football grounds. That's where we operate. So we set up what they call the TV compound. And the helicopter crashed in the car park very close to where everyone was working. So they obviously were fully aware because they really would have, mm. have heard it. So the producer came on and just explained what had happened. And I guess I had a bit of training because I was working in Formula One when Felipe Massa was hit in the head with a spring mm. from the car in front and was, I might take Alfie off now, and was badly injured and we were even told at one point that he'd passed away. Now, it was wrong and Felipe was in a critical condition and they were, it was touch and go I think, but obviously he survived. So that was really important for me, that moment on the BBC, to remember that in that situation, it's not my job to break the news to people mm. of who was on the helicopter, what might or might not have happened. It's not about being salacious. It's not about grabbing headlines. It is just about sharing only the facts that we know. Mm. Um, and we're also not a rolling news channel. So, hi there. So I was, I was kind of conscious that we, we shouldn't be doing that job. Mm. And obviously we'd also seen the people climb on the helicopter, but again, it's not, mm not my job to be no. saying who was on it. I, it's just, for all we knew, the friends and family of those people were inside the club watching our programme. We were still live on air. I suppose it's a, these sorts of situations are strange. I mean, I remember doing the Europa League final um, the weekend of the, Man the Manchester bombing or the week of the Manchester Arena bombings and Manchester United were playing with Manchester having just been devastated by that bomb. And obviously there was a lot of talk about whether the game would carry on or not. So I think that in those moments, yeah. sport becomes totally unimportant, but then also massively symbolic as well. Of course, yeah. Because it's what brings people together, you know? Like, what became so important in the weeks after the helicopter crash was the football club. The yeah. players, um, the fans coming together, having a place to mourn. And actually, where the helicopter crashed is now a beautiful, a beautiful garden of remembrance for all the people that were on the mm. on the plane including the crew and it's like oh it's just it's, well, it's a thought... good reminder that you need to make the most of every minute of every day because it's uh it's over too quick isn't it for what it's worth i thought you cope with it really well actually Thanks. and i remember watching at the time and i just thought you dealt with it like a human being yeah which sounds weird to say that as a compliment but often people on tv stop behaving like human beings because mm. they think they have it's like the auto cue thing and yeah. i must say this in a but well, I, that's, I suppose that's my kind of <clears throat> my approach to my job really is that 
stats leave me pretty dry. Mm. You know, it's like if something incredible happens, I don't need to know that it's the 75th time in the last hundred years that it's happened. And, you know, like it's about that moment. It's about living in the now, I suppose. And as much as we can do that, probably the better. So, you know, I appreciate you saying that. And sport is about emotion, man. What's sport about if it's not about emotion? I want to talk about your podcast, Jake. Yeah. The High Performance Podcast, which if people haven't heard it, they really should. Cause Thank you. I don't often recommend other people's podcasts, but I will make an exception because I found it fascinating. And well, you, you tell... What did you find you, fascinating? What I liked about it, because you've got some brilliant guests. It's everyone from Frank Lampard to Rio Ferdinand to Pochettino. And I am a huge football fan anyway, and sports yeah. fan. But I think why I liked it is... You hear those people who are kind of at the top of their game, essentially, talking about what drives them. Yeah. I like to look at sport as a snapshot of life, effectively. And the mm. things that these people are doing to get to the top of the tree in their given sport is absolutely no different to what my kids should be doing to get to the top which of their is, which class. Which is what, or the do you CEO think? of a business. Well, the recurring themes from the podcast. I mean, first of all, the other thing that I try and live by is this thing of 100% responsibility. Which means all kinds of things happen that are not your fault, right? I mean, we've talked about your trauma. We've talked about my trauma. None of those things are my fault or your fault, right? Mm. Sadly, and it is difficult to get your head around it sometimes, it's still our responsibility to deal with that, right? And I think as soon as we're shifting responsibility to other people, playing the blame game, talking about luck or chance, we're really giving up control. And I think living a life of 100% responsibility where you are responsible for your good decisions, your bad decisions, decisions that other people take, things that happen to you, being responsible, taking it on yourself and going, I am, it's my life, it's my story, I'm gonna make sure I deal with that. And that is something that has come through loud and clear, I think, on the podcast, that all of these people take responsibility they don't pass yes. it off to anybody else and when i thought it was interesting with frank lampard was talking about there was an incident where there was someone who was who'd been abusing him in the stands yeah. and then he encountered him in sort of civilian life mm. and he stopped himself i thought it was interesting that frank lampard was able to display that emotional control yeah and how that affects him when he's playing and now when he's managing do you think yeah. that's something you have, you've mastered? I think so. I've probably never really considered it, really. Because I still think that, a bit how you mentioned at the top about, <clears throat> you see what's different about them. I still think I interview these people and I put them on a pedestal and don't consider that I'm necessarily operating at the level that they are. But yeah, I think emotional control is probably something that I have got. Um, apart from when my family are concerned, like, I'm a proper hypochondriac. Are you? Yeah. Oh, Jake, I love a hypochondriac. So any like any slight pain or illness, or my if you know one of my kids is limping because they pulled a muscle, my brain automatically goes right ahead to disaster scenario, and I and that is about the only time I'm totally out of control. I want to be in, I want to be more in control, and I've learned to say to myself, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, mental health, Mm. respect to mental health issues. The thing that helped me the most was when the beautiful lady I met and spoke to for a long time called Ruth, she said, maybe just give up control over this little thing 
and accept that you are going to live a brilliant, fulfilling, passionate, rewarding life. But this little bit of your brain is maybe always going to be there. You just let it be there because it's just a trick. That's all it is. This anxiety that it's creating is just a trick. It's telling you a story which you're choosing to believe. So just don't believe the story. Don't fall for the trick and accept it. That changed everything for me. And I think now when I find myself worrying like mad, lying awake at night because one of my kids looked ill or Harriet had an issue or something, um, I say, well, look, it might not be brilliant. It might turn out badly. Who knows? However, what I do know is I'm this way inclined. It's more than likely going to be a trick. See, I'm still not at the point where I just say, oh, it's a trick. I still can't quite get that far. But by saying, I know myself, I know what my brain is like, let it be there. I presume Ruth was a therapist of some sort. Um, I think that's what it's helpful for, is that my experience of it is that it doesn't stop you thinking a certain way, but it often can stop you acting on it. Because you think, oh, I'm doing that thing I do. You become your own sort of analyst in a way. And I, I suppose in some respects, maybe, I had not really thought about it before, the High Performance Podcast comes from the fact that I spoke with someone and what I really want that podcast to be about is that there are answers everywhere for all kinds of struggles and all kinds of questions. And all too often we struggle trying to find the answer ourselves, but hey, guess what? Someone's already been there, someone's already looked for it, someone's already found it, and someone's willing to sit down and share it with you. I mean, one of my, one of the big reasons why I walked away from the BBC and joined BT, and I suppose why I moved up here as well, is like, never sit in a comfy chair is something that one of my first bosses said to me, a guy called Adam Stunhope when I worked at Rapture TV, and I said, I want to go to London. Um, And this was before I got the job on Children's BBC. I didn't have a job. I went down there, slept on people's floors, created a showreel, went and met people and hoped for the best. Now, a lot of people would say, are you mad? And Adam just said, listen, all credit to you. The motto I live by, never sit in the comfy chair. And I try and do that as often as possible. Well, so do I, but I'm not going to his house, Jake. Um, when you were growing up, Jake, yeah. were you the handsome boy who got all the girls? No, I had no girlfriends. Oh. I was a really late developer. I wasn't necessarily ugly, but I wasn't like the cool guy. And I think cool kids are the ones that get the girlfriends. I was never cool. And it was never in the sports teams. Like, I, know I was a really late developer. I remember when I was doing my French oral, they made us play volleyball outside until it was our turn to go in and do our exam. And I didn't dare put my arms in there because I had no underarm hair. And all these other lads have got like six packs and pecs. And I'm thinking, what the fuck? Why so I was trying to play volleyball like this. But, but you see, in that case, I'm not saying you're a nerd, but you've done the ultimate revenge of the nerds where you're now presenting the jocks wet dream show. Yeah. Does but that I, ever occur to you? Yeah, I think so. I think it probably does. Maybe it's one of those subconscious drivers but I hope I don't do it in a way that is like the jocks tv show do you know what I mean by that like all the criticism that comes my way tends to come from like 18 year old very very like raw footbally lads lads yeah and if I if they send me some criticism I'll try and ignore it but sometimes I'll look on their feed and nine times out of ten it is the total polar opposite opinions about life that I hold and then I sort of think to myself do you know what I'm quite glad you find me an annoying TV <laughs> presenter. I'm really pleased about that. Because <laughs> well, I would never, in a million years, go for a drink with you. Yeah. So let's just leave it at that. 
my view on that is that I think sometimes people who are sensitive and empathetic tend to get targeted by bullies and I feel the reason for that is that bullies sort of know on some level there's something lacking mm -hmm. and they're kind of jealous of those qualities because those qualities make you likeable. I think there's an, I think, yeah, maybe, maybe you're right and I suppose that the sort of thing that when you get older you think, oh, what, you know like when you meet some people and you're not really sure what's missing and you can't put your finger on it and then it's like, it's like a charm thing, it's like a sort of a, an ability to just be with you in that moment, right? I guess, well, as you get older, you cherish that, those sorts of people, but maybe when you're 14 years old, there's no value to that. What is that? That is a fish. Alfie's is got it? a skeleton in his mouth. What? Oh, Jake, this is like Nightmare Before Christmas. I want to go home. It might be like an otter or a stoat or something, I think. Alfie! But it could be like a big... There's a big fish, isn't it? It's like pike or something. You're not very squeamish, are you? No, not really. I'll check, you it, not? I'll check it up on top of the blackberries. You're quite, like, you had this car accident which looked terrific and your whole car was smashed <laughs> up and you were going, oh, a bit of a night, bit of a bother tonight. <laughs> I, I mean, you're, is that just a posh country thing or is that just... Do you think I'm you always, I'd say you're doing all right for yourself. Yeah, but that, does that make you posh, though? What, I'm, what I'm intrigued by this. What class would you say you are? I don't know, really. Mid, middle class? I mean, I, I've never struggled, but my dad was a charity worker, my mum was a teacher, we just went to state school. It would have, my mum had to work so that she could pay for us to have stuff and for my sister to go to uni. But, oh my God, my story is most definitely not one of um, heartache and sorrow. Were your parents kind of Guardian readers? Yeah, they get the eye now. They used to get oh. the Guardian when I was growing up, yeah. Quite socially conscious. Very. And... Well, my dad, you know, my dad worked for... For age concern, Norfolk, he spent his life wanting to sort of help people out. Alfie, come here. Oh, there's a car coming. Come on. That's Mrs. H. Mrs. H. Oh, do you know what? Hey. I've really got a great feeling about Mrs. H. Oh, she's so nice. You, did you? What, really tell me when you met her. her. Was it real love at first sight? Yeah, it was absolutely love at first sight. Only I told her it was love at first sight. And her response was, <laughs> I can't say the same thing back. That's what she said when I said I love you. Um, how how many weeks or months in? Oh, don't say it was an hour in. There was a couple of weeks in, but That's we met two early, weeks Jake. before she went to uni. And then she went to uni and we stayed together throughout uni. Then she came to London and we stayed together. She got a job in TV. She is the person who makes me feel like no matter what's going on, everything is fine. She is an absolute mm. earth mother. Like she, You think she had the, the job working on Strictly Come Dancing, looking after celebs and dancers, gave it all up because she thinks... Gave, well, gave it all up, Jake, to do more talent handling. Yeah, me, exactly. <laughs> but gave it all up because she felt that she should be, she wants to be with the kids. And she wants to, you know, I think she pines for it without really saying how painful it is to not do it anymore. Hello, Mrs. H. Hiya. I'm just hearing that Jake said I hey. love you after a few weeks. And what, was, you, what was your response? What did you say? You can't say the same. I love this woman. Unbelievable. Hey, She's hey, hey. brilliant. Yeah, with a lovely walk. Nice, I really enjoyed it. I fell in the mud, I mean, it's been eventful. Spoke about Flo's at outdoor swimming. I love you. Do you know what? I kind of love you, Mrs H, already. You've got very good energy about you. See you in a bit, drive safe. 
So nice to meet you. What do you What do you like as a partner? Hi there. How are you? Yeah, really well, thanks. What a lovely day. Is that a little terrier? Little border, is it? Is that a border? Oh, Lakeland, lovely. Stay there, Belle. No. Keen to say hello to you two. We're all going that way. <laughs> Have a nice walk. Do you, wait, do you lose your temper, Jake? No, that is the one thing that Harriet wishes had. You know, sometimes she's like, can we just have a fucking row about something? And I'm like, yeah, but what? I don't know why. I've got no reason to be... Like, I think I'm probably quite annoying in that respect that... How I does try, he... I've tried to get into a headspace where little shitty things don't get me down. I don't compare myself to other people. I genuinely do not care what other people think of me and what I do and how I do it. Not in a sort of arrogant, I'm going to bulldoze through kind of way, but just in a, like it's unhealthy, I think. And sometimes she's like, God, just get a bit angry about something. But I, I'd have no reason, Emily, to be angry about anything. I just feel massively blessed. If you have a, a marital route, who's the first to make up? Me. <laughs> Every time. I can't bear a grudge. I can be, like, I can get obviously annoyed. And I can go to bed so sort angry. Sort of snappy or something, yeah. Like, and I'm just like, you know, you roll over in bed. We've all been there. I'm, God, I'm no saint. But you roll over in bed and you're like, right, I'm going to sleep. Good night. <gasps> oh. And then the next morning, I'm the one rolling over going, Harriet. <laughs> and I feel like saying, I know it was definitely your fault. It was definitely your fault, but <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you don't do the, uh, I'm really sorry you felt that way. <laughs> Try not because to. Because those people... Harriet would say that like, I can be very annoying, though. I'm sure of it. Would she? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Are you a strict dad, Jake? I try to be strict, yeah. My thing, I suppose... And this is probably annoying, and this probably does come from all of the things we've talked about, is I really do get frustrated if things aren't right, you know? Like, perfect. Like, if someone hasn't really put the effort in and really cared about it and realised, really, that... Because like, I, think, I think it's quite a healthy thing just to have a sort of a little smattering of OCD, like wanting things just to be just so, you know? Do you, do you have that? Yeah. Well, here I am walking and picking up litter from outside my house. Of course I do. <laughs> Ridiculous. Are you a perfectionist? Uh, I try to be. I'm, I would say I'm a perfectionist, but I'm not perfect. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'd love to be perfect. I certainly... I do like to start every day... <laughs> and have a plan for doing a few things really, really well, if I can. What we're a going, nice walk we're Oh, do you know, it's been really good for the... So OK, Belle, you're coming off the lead now, darling. Come on. Come you here, sort, please. Without knowing it, you've basically... Um, do you think you've turned this podcast into a little bit of a therapy session as well for the people you chat to? I mean, uh, the stuff that we've spoken about there, uh, I would probably haven't... Like, I haven't spoken about for, with anyone, I don't think. Certainly not in a public forum like this. How do you do that? How does she get you to do that? Man. You're quite an open book, I think, Jay. I can always tell from the start because I don't usually think I'm like a spy, but the minute I turned up, you were, honestly, it was the warmest welcome. You were standing here. I felt like Downton Abbey and the staff were greeting me. <laughs> like you looked so, you were so, and your wife came out and. Well, so I've got very good energy. Um, here's my last question. Yeah. Two questions I'm going to sneak in. Do you cry? Yep. Too easily. When was the last time? Um, 
I, when we went back on air after the shutdown, and I wrote a bit of script for the football coverage, which was, um, it was, there will be, you'll be watching this now. It makes me feel a little bit teary. You'll be watching this now, and when you last watched a game of football, the person you were watching it with is no longer here. Um, and that was kind of my way of saying, look, I think we've all been through an horrendous time, but f football is back and it's not the answer, but maybe it's a bit helpful. And I guess, I guess that, is the, that maybe sort of sums up my approach to being a sports presenter. Finally, what do you most hope people would say about you when you leave the room? What do you hope I'll say to Sarah, my producer, when we leave here today about I you? I wish we were still with him. Because when I, I interviewed Maurizio Pochettino just recently for my podcast and I left and I just felt like that was, oh, I want to be back with you. Like the energy from him is so lovely. And I think that's the nicest thing you can say about someone. I wish I was still with them. Well, the good news is, Jake, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I'm moving lunch. in. <laughs> Great. Come on. <whistles> Belle, come and say goodbye to Emily. Look, come and say goodbye. Oh, give me a cuddle. Come Not here. you, Jake. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that. And do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>